Welcome back to part two of our of our cemetery episode. Once again, we're joined with by Jessica Bomber, the executive director of the Woodlands Cemetery. We're going to listen to um, Ashley talk about her work looking for lizards in cemeteries in Brisbane. She said that you know that I didn't include this part, but that, that there are about fifty species of lizards in the area total, which. For context, in the eastern United States, especially our northeast United States, you might have three species of lizards tops. We have like one or two. Um, and she's got 50. But we have way more salamanders. We have way more salamanders. Um, and How many does Australia have? Salamanders? I don't think they have any. Exactly. <laughs> Suck it, Australia. Um, she saw a couple non-venomous snakes in there, too. Um, she said, was noting that if she were there at night, she might have seen some more frogs and stuff hopping around. Um, also would have seen geckos, so her lizard count might have gone higher if she was out there um, at night. Okay, certainly. Um, my name is Ashley Gurian, and I'm an honors student. Um, so my study, I actually looked at um, reptile biodiversity and abundance in urban cemeteries around uh, the Greater Brisbane region. So what I actually did is I visited 18 cemeteries, um, and that was a mixture of what I considered historic, which was cemeteries over a hundred years in age and had the presence of Victorian style uh, graves. Can you describe just it occurs to me people besides you and me might not know what that looks like. So so what does a Victorian cemetery look like? Yeah, uh, certainly. Um so Victorian style cemetery have um uh what is actually referred to as uh curbing. And what that is is a concrete surround that actually um, covers the actual grave itself. So when most people think of cemeteries, they mostly just think of the modern style uh, graves, which just have the headstone. But these have the headstone, and they also have concrete that actually uh, covers the entire grave. So what I actually found is the historic cemeteries have um, significantly greater abundances of uh, reptiles, this mainly being uh, the small-bodied skinks, um, but they were just just so abundant in the cemeteries, which was just staggering compared to um, the other sites that I assessed. So we've got a lot of um, so uh, the the tombs, which um, really good places for basking and things like this. There's not much as for gardens and things like that. So you've got the odd tree that does provide some shade, but a lot of it is just a bit of lawn in between the, the actual graves themselves and a few trees um, providing a bit of shade, but not much else really. Well, I come from Brisbane, so we're actually very lucky that we have an enormous variety of reptiles, including the lizards. Uh, one particular that um, most people may know is um, the bearded dragons. They're very popular in the pet trade, but these guys actually um, occur wild uh, within um, urban areas, and cemeteries seem to be one of their uh, preferences. Oh, yeah, and I was just going to say that, um, yeah, we've got the other sort of blue-tongued skinks and other small small lampropholis and other little ones like that, so quite diverse. So um, just to get a sense uh, about how many species are you seeing um, in modern and Victorian cemeteries in Brisbane? So I've seen about eight different species um, in the modern, uh, sorry, the historic cemeteries. 
with about five in the modern style. I know that doesn't actually sound like a lot of um, species, but my time was actually quite limited within these cemeteries, so I didn't actually get to um, go on any nighttime explorations where um, I reckon there would be more species that I haven't even been able to see. So why... Just so, why did you choose to study um, the reptiles of cemeteries? Um, I really just stumbled across the idea um, because previously I was looking for eastern bearded dragons um, within uh, the urban environment, and the only places that I actually um, found them with any great success was in the cemeteries. So it got me thinking, sort of like, if they're here, what else is? Tell me about the reactions you got from friends and family when you told them you were wandering around cemeteries looking at lizards. <laughs> yes, um, I, I got a few odd looks. Definitely um, a good conversation starter, that's for sure. But I found once people got over the actual surprise of, okay, um, being in the cemetery other than sort of um, on business, I suppose, yeah, people were actually started to come around and be like, well, yeah, that's actually now that I think about it, it, would be a perfect spot for a reptile to be. Um, I was actually quite, you know, uh, impressed by uh, the, the amount of microhabitats actually within the cemetery. And they all seem to be stemming from these historic Victorian-style graves because they were so distinct. But because uh, the time, you know, weathered them, cracks started to form, which was perfect for small-bodied little reptiles. And even um, when the soil started to come away from the graves, it would leave huge um, gaps underneath, which are perfect for um, blue-tongued skinks and others like that. So I've seen many a skink sort of scurry under a grave and things like that, and I was um, quite surprised just um, how they were utilising the area. I think um, cemeteries, if I was a lizard, would be an ideal spot because you've got the abundance of shelter, and, and other things like that, and also very limited human disturbance. So when people are in these areas, they're usually quickly passing through just because it's the quickest uh, way, or you know they're visiting um, deceased uh, members of their family or friends. So they really are there with a purpose. Where in other areas in the urban environment, people sort of seem to show a different kind of emotion. So I think. One of the cemetery's greatest attributes is its sort of solemn nature. Or what is Brisbane like as a city? I mean, is it a is it a place where it's mostly like asphalt and concrete and buildings, or is there a lot of greenery otherwise? Well, for me, like Brisbane is a very large city, um, so we we've got actually um, a, a huge amount of um, space within the actual Brisbane area. Um, a lot of it is uh, residential housing. Um, you've got a lot of concrete structures and things like that. For me, it's hard because I don't really, I've sort of been, um, I, I grew up here. So while I don't want to say there's limited green space and things like that, while there are beautiful parks and things like that, but it's getting more developed, I believe. So it's becoming more sort of concrete jungle, <laughs> I suppose. But we do have, you know, some beautiful areas like green spaces, like botanical gardens and things like that, which are a true gem. 
notable wildlife of cemeteries that you saw while you were there that weren't and sort of your that weren't particular that weren't what you were focusing on in your study? Yeah, so what I actually found um, quite interesting is there was um, a few times where I actually spotted some owls just roosting in uh, the the trees. So I sort of was um, talking to a few people and they said that potentially while the out why the owls are actually there is because people lay flowers on the graves and got some local possum species that apparently do eat flowers. So they suggested the link between people leaving flowers, the possums, and then the owls coming in to eat the possums. Not to take somewhere you really don't want to go. I don't know. I'll go there. All right. So I'll say before your term here, Yes. Um, I would go running in the woodlands. This is back when I ran. Um, and... I would routinely sort of startle the local herd of deer wherever they happened to be sleeping. Um, And then one day, I came back and there were no deer. They were all gone. And I could understand that. I mean, the deer eat a lot of stuff. And also, you know, deer, I can imagine deer bounding out into into Woodland Avenue and going through windshields and stuff. There were lots of deer issues. There were over 50 deer. But as of when? Like This was 2000 and... Maybe? Yeah. Okay. And so that sounds about right for them disappearing. And and they were. Well, I guess they were cold. Yeah, they were, and they actually did like a public press release about it because yeah. they had a lot of people. A lot of people I meet today, even though I had nothing to do with the deer, when I tell them that I work here, the first thing they say to me is, "I oh. used to just love seeing the deer at the woodlands." Yeah, so, I used to love seeing it too, but I was like, this is not going to end well, guys. But, you know, we're a 54-acre enclosed site. Our front gates, our front fence along Woodland Avenue is a 19th century fence that has spikes on it. So, routinely, the director at the time, or people at the time that worked here, uh, would come in and there would be an impaled deer on the front fence oh, on didn't Woodland quite make it Avenue. Over. Yeah. It didn't quite make it over. Um... They were also inbreeding, you know, at the point where there were 50 trapped in this small space. They were inbreeding, they were diseased. I bet you they have a, a bit more of a gene flu than you think. You think? Yeah. They, they could go along the railroad tracks to Bartrams and then to Heinz. But there were still too many for yeah. the yeah. site. Um, so recently, though. Recently, Emma sent me a fabulous photograph. Mm-hmm. Which we'll, we, post um, our, our, we'll, we'll post everywhere we can because that's yeah. hilarious. It's happened in the last <laughs> month. Um, it was not a. It was it was not a great day for me. It was a Wednesday, um, <laughs> and uh, we were actually dealing with the groundhogs. We were put we were putting the traps out, and we had this visitor come up and say, "I just want to let you know that you know down down near the railroad tracks by the fence, there's there's a deer running around, and it looks really upset, and it's running." along the fence really quickly. I'm afraid he's going to hurt somebody that's running or seems really kind of like he's losing his mind. And I was like, oh my gosh. And we had seen a couple deer behind, beyond the fence on the land we leased to University and Sciences. And when I saw them, I was like, please stay over there. Do not come in to the <laughs> cemetery to? proper. <laughs> they did not listen. And, um, so this man stopped me, and I said, oh, my gosh. And then later that day, a friend of mine that was here for a tour helping me with it um, 
said, I, I really hate to tell you this because I know you don't want to hear it, but a deer ran right in front of my car. So this was all on the same day. That evening, a friend of Emma's posted, had come here for a run and posted a picture on his Facebook page of... Deer humping in, deer the, humping woodlands. in yeah. the woodlands. And so the next morning I came in and Emma looked at me and she said, I'm going to tell you something that's either going to make you laugh or make you cry. <laughs> and she's like, I didn't, I was going to send it to you last night, but I decided not to because I've always, I kind of heard of the saga of the deer back in 2007 and 2008. Yeah. I've always been so happy that I don't have to deal with that problem. We've talked about, so now a couple of the challenges of managing a cemetery to be both a cemetery and a wild space or a, a nature space. So then those are problems we talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at Tower Hamlets, we were hearing about um, managing meadows for wildflowers and butterflies, diversity and that kind of stuff. Um, are there things that you guys have done to, um, to attract species or to, whether that's plants mm-hmm. or, or animals? Well, I mean, we have plans to do more to attract species. Um, we had a meadow, but it was full of invasives, so we're kind of replanting the meadow yeah. um, because it was not a healthy meadow. Um, so we're currently in the process of replanting the meadow to make it a more kind of um, suitable landscape for wildlife. Um, we have a really kind of large amount of tree species on the property, both native and non-native. Um, and so it's interesting to see. We had um, the American, or the local chapter of the... It was... Was there a combined trip with the entomological? Yeah. And the, the yes, it was a combined, yeah, combined trip. Report, yeah. Yes, it was a combined trip. And, you know, one of the things they were looking at, we have some really kind of rare in this country species of trees planted here so they were looking to see are there different kinds of bugs that like these non-native species oh yeah Um, so that was one of the things they actually looked at the Zelkova it's a um, a Zelkova carpinifolia versus the Japanese Zelkova which is more common our Zelkova introduced to North America here state champion, largest in the state, right across from the mansion. And so they were really interested to see, like, is what kind of bugs like this tree. Yeah. Um, it's not that they're in the elm family. So they're in the elm family. So potentially yeah. things that like elm. Yeah. So those sorts of things. We also, you know, we try really hard to go about our landscape management in a natural way. Um, so that we don't kind of discourage things from being here. And then long-term, we have plans to kind of do some longer grass areas and that sort of thing um, instead of the kind of uh, mostly kind of normal lawn, you know, lawn mown grass aesthetic that became popular in cemeteries in the 20th century. This next part is an interview with some guys from um, the Mount Auburn Cemetery is another connection through Dave Hewitt. Um, I cut out some of the descriptions of the, the critters, but I'll, I'll say briefly that um, spring peepers that they talk about are small frogs, incredibly loud, calling little frogs about the size of your thumbnail. Um, the American toads they talk about um, have this really pretty high trill call, um, and you, you hear them and see them breeding around Philadelphia in a lot of like 
where you might have a pond or a reservoir. Um, uh, gray tree frogs, like they sound like, they're tree frogs. They live in trees um, and call a little bit later in the spring. Um, it strikes me as sounding a little bit like a, like a woodpecker, kind of this quavery kind of call. Um, and then uh, spotted salamanders, which is the part that I was really surprised by, um, but they are... Uh, they breed in vernal pools, which is why um, when I was thinking about like where could you have that would have a pool of water, <laughs> right? <laughs> that we could, someone could maybe do it legally, but drop some eggs in there and see what happens. How big of a pool would you need? Um, this rug. Yeah, um, okay. And so I was even smaller actually, but to have like a population right. breeding. Um, and so the uh, spotted salamanders are not something you usually see in urbanized areas. Um, and so they, they can actually, the adults can walk like hundreds and hundreds of meters or hundreds and hundreds of yards to get to their breeding spot um, and then disperse again to the landscape. So you need to preserve like the wetland spot but also surrounding uplands. Mm-hmm. And so that's why that was really interesting that they had those spotted salamanders there. I um, mean, he's right. If you see spotted salamanders, you're going to ask the question, well, why don't we have lots of frogs? Um, they, uh, in 2013, they launched a what he called a mini master planning process to generate their wildlife action plan. Um, and then did a lot of, um, did some monitoring um, in conjunction with an organization called Grassroots Wildlife Conservation um, to, to sample um, local fish and other critters and made it a sort of a public process. Um, they have acoustic monitoring equipment to check out what kind of um, amphibians are calling. And I think we're going to include some of those results, some, some recordings of, of, of frog and toad calls. Um, and they've also done some uh, water quality uh, improvements, so stuff to slow down the velocity of stormwater on the property, um, a, what they call a biofiltration pool to collect stormwater and sort of remediate it, um, which has improved some of the water quality in the local, in the properties, um, running water, like streams and whatnot. All right, well, Joe Martinez and... Um far as the title for this, citizen scientist. Uh, I've worked in a number of different jobs over the years uh, in different areas of herpetology, and that continues to be my main interest. Uh, So this whole thing at the cemetery really has been out of um, personal interest with myself and this other gentleman, Patrick Fairbairn, and um, we've pretty much pursued it from our own self-interest and uh, being able to hear amphibian sounds at the cemetery when we go to look at the spotted salamanders when they're migrating. Okay. So, um, uh, Paul, go ahead. Okay. Uh, my name is Paul Kwiatkowski. I'm the Conservation and Sustainability Manager at Mount Auburn Cemetery. And... Um, I advocate for the protection of wildlife habitat and uh, for projects to improve biodiversity at Mount Auburn. And I also promote conservation of natural resources and seek more sustainable energy sources for our buildings, such as uh, solar photovoltaic or uh, using uh, uh, credits from uh, wind power uh, for our structures, um, and also um, I'll research and hopefully Im- implement uh, alternative fuels for our work fleet and our equipment. Okay. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about the cemetery? Where is it, and, and uh, what kind of space is it? Okay. Mount Auburn Cemetery is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, it was consecrated in 1831, 
Uh, it's 175 acres. Uh, we are an active cemetery, uh, and we have four water bodies, three vernal pools, I, excuse me, three ponds and one vernal pool uh, at the site, and we also have approximately 5,000 trees uh, from around the world in our arboretum collection. Did I hear you correctly that you have spotted salamanders? Yes, yep, that's correct. Is that like a, a, a sort of a remnant population, or is it something that you guys introduced? No, that's been here all along. Um, and so it's a remnant population going back probably, I would say, to the 1840s, 1850s, as this whole area was developed. Uh, <clears throat> whatever populations were around, metapopulation shrunk down. And at this point, they all breed at the single vernal pool, which is in the geographical center of the cemetery. As far as I know, and I've searched quite a bit, it's the only spotted salamander population in Cambridge. And the next closest populations that I'm aware of are several miles away from here in other towns. Uh, Cambridge uh, is very much uh, an urban city. It is located uh, north of Boston, just across from the Charles River. And um, so we have the, the typical uh, urban buildup and sprawl all around us. And so Mount Auburn really is kind of a green oasis uh, within all that urban sprawl. So it's a, it's a great location for birders to come and observe the, the, the bird migrations in the spring. Uh, and it's also uh, a great location for people that want to get closer to nature and wildlife throughout the year. And we, we do have many visitors and we have many regulars who come here each and every day to spend time, whether they're here to commemorate a loved one or if they're just here to go for a walk and be amongst the trees and, and uh, the peacefulness within the city. Yeah, so up until about five years ago, you only saw and heard bullfrogs during the course of the summer, and I'm trying to think, uh, the spotted salamanders in the spring, and that was pretty much it. We thought there were green frogs here as well, but we really haven't uh, seen any now that we're looking at it very closely. So it really would seem that bullfrogs are the other amphibian that are typically found in the cemetery. And they could have been here all along uh, because they are pretty hardy, but they also could have been extirpated and then moved in along the Charles River as a wildlife corridor. Okay. We also assumed for, I mean, right up until the last two years that redback salamanders were here, just given the size of the cemetery yeah. and the, that there's so much growth here. But in the last two years, we've really set up some uh, artificial cover object uh, surveys, and we have not found a single one. So huh. based on that, and we've set them up around the cemetery and what we feel is the appropriate habitat, and there's been nothing. So that was a big surprise. Okay. Um, it is a surprise. Uh, so 
what work, tell me about sort of the, the amphibian conservation um, and sort of uh, encouragement, introduction work that you guys have done. So it basically goes back to about six or seven years ago. Uh, myself and other people routinely come out to watch the spotted salamanders migrate at night in the spring. And because those of us that do also frequent other vernal pools in the area, and we always bemoan the fact that when we're at the cemetery, it's completely silent. You'll hear a couple of birds perhaps, uh, night birds, but that is it. And we contrasted that with any typical, quote-unquote, vernal pool that you'd find in a more uh, natural area where you'd typically hear spring peepers, wood frogs, uh, early-onset toads calling, stuff like that. And we began to think about would it be possible, given the habitat that's present in the cemetery, of bringing in, introducing a couple of springtime species so that we would be able to have um, calling frogs in the cemetery. So that's where it began. And to that end, um, Patrick and I sent in a proposal to the cemetery to, over a three-year period for each species, uh, try to reintroduce American toads, spring peepers, and gray tree frogs. So. Okay in the middle of that right now. So what do you do when you want to introduce them? Do you just go out in the countryside and grab some eggs and dump them in the ponds, or does it take a little bit more um, so, planning? And, yeah. Uh, logistics and legalities. Uh, because yeah. Because right in town here. So the first thing I had to do after getting, or we had to do after getting permission from the cemetery administration to do this was get permission from the Watertown Conservation Commission, even though we say, refer to Cambridge and we talk about Mount Auburn, the offices, and I guess about one-tenth, what percentage would you say is in Cambridge? Yeah, very small. About a tenth is, is a good guess. The majority of our grounds is in Watertown. Right. So we had to get permission from the Watertown Conservation Commission to allow us to bring these in. Because it's Massachusetts wildlife, I also we also had to get a scientific collecting permit from the state Fish and Wildlife Department. And then I also had to get permission from the different sites where I collected the tadpoles from. So it's basically a collection permit from the state, permission from the Watertown Conservation Commission, and permission from the owners of the sites where we collected the tadpoles. So that was the legality part. And then logistically, I wanted to bring in tadpoles because as they metamorphose, in theory, they would imprint on the area that they're uh, coming out of. So as adults, they would go back to that same vernal pool or wetlands that, they're, that they metamorphosed out of. And to get tadpoles, I had to find several areas uh, near Boston, and I wanted to get collect from several different sites just with respect to genetic diversity for this population. So I would have to, at the appropriate time of year, go out and collect tadpoles and then transport them into the cemetery. Okay. 
And so I guess you've got all the you got all the clearances and you've been and you've been transporting some tadpoles. Yeah. So at this point, our three years of bringing in American toad tadpoles are over. That finished two years ago, and I'm in the final year of introducing this. 2016 will be my final season of bringing in great tree frog tadpoles. And incidentally, with the American tadpoles, I also inadvertently brought in spring peeper tadpoles, and I know that <laughs> they have been calling for the last two years now uh, pretty vociferously. Um, so uh, I guess why – this isn't something I've heard about a lot, you know, about a, a cemetery um, sort of intentionally restoring native wildlife um, maybe it happens more than I realized, but uh, can you talk a little, Paul, talk a little bit about Mount Auburn and, and sort of why this is important? Um, I mean, to have a, to have staff, you know, devoted to 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 sort of let's say greening the cemetery um, and sort of the the reintroduction project. How does it fit into Mount Auburn? Okay, uh, well, Mount Auburn uh, from its inception was the the first garden cemetery in America. It, it began the rural cemetery movement, where it wasn't a cemetery that was just uh, spaced out evenly with rows of graves uh, that could be just mowed in, in straight lines up and down. Uh, it was really well thought out to be uh, an arboretum and botanic garden as well as an active cemetery. So there are many different nooks uh, and crannies for people to uh, feel like they're nowhere near the city and they can have moments of quiet contemplation here. So that um, that's kind of the backdrop of Mount Auburn. And from from that, we have, over the years, really paid close attention to habitat and to try to balance being an active cemetery with uh, wanting to uh, have healthy uh, ecosystems here at Mount Auburn. So how'd you get the idea to do bat walks? Um, we started a couple summers ago. We had firefly night um, because we just noticed that there are a lot of fireflies at a certain time of year. And we thought, you know, a lot of kids that grow up in the city don't really have the same firefly experience that I had as a kid. I mean, every summer night as a kid, I was outside catching fireflies. And I realized that there was an opportunity here to kind of share that with the community. So we had firefly night and... It was, we had a ton of people come. We had almost 300 people come. It's really low key. The Academy of Natural Sciences came. So, because of the success of that, we decided to do a Nature Night series based on things we have here. Bat Night being one of them, also cemetery bats. It's a natural Being in a cemetery at yeah. dark, <laughs> who doesn't want to come to that? And then we. You know, discovered that this man who discovered a species of bat is buried here, so we have a history <laughs> connection with it. And so we try to kind of 
bring some of our history interpretation into all of our programming. So that was great. And then we had a handful of people suggest we have a moth night, which we, it got rained out one year, so we had to cancel. The other year we had it, um, we had it during moth week, which I believe is in late July. Who do you have to do it? Um, We've worked with some people at Bartram's. We've basically done a lot of research on our own, and we've moth-baited. But the night we did it... How do you moth-bait? You make a... There's all kinds of recipes out there, but we made a concoction... Oh, like a sugary mixture or something? beer and sugar, and then you paint it on trees and in certain areas. Uh. And then we kind of get a sheet that we put certain type of light on to try to attract them. One of the problems with our first moth night is that the time of year we did it, it, by the time moth night was over, it was barely dark. Because we we realized we needed moth night to be later than bat night and later Uh, than firefly uh, night because we really need darkness. The solstice is not going to work for that. Exactly. Um, And then the second time it was rained out. But this year, hopefully, we keep trying for moth night to get some good things. First time it was also a really cool... For, for a summer night, it was a really cool, low-humidity summer night, mm. and I don't know if that had an impact, but yeah. I think it probably did. So, anyway, we did this Nature Night series. It's free programming, and people really love it. I think they love it for a variety of reasons. I think the nature definitely has something to do with it, but I also think it's being in an open space that you can let your kids run around in. Um, it's free. We have ice cream. <laughs> all of those things but it's a great way for us to connect with other partners so we usually we only have two people on staff here none of us are scientists um, or experts in nature but there's so many great institutions in Philadelphia that we yeah. can partner with so we usually look for good partners for each one of the nature nights for you know to help with the education component this year at Firefly Night we're working with the um, the Tangle arts which they they have they do acrobat performances they're doing a firefly themed acrobat performance for us on firefly night oh my so it's become kind of a fun thing we can make it we made it to two of them we made it to firefly night and bat night last year Mm -hmm. um what'd you think i thought it was great i think my daughter goes to bed a little early for Mm -hmm. For, for so it's stretching her bedtime, especially yeah. for the firefly it's night. It's actually with a lot of the, the bat night was a little later in the summer, so it worked mm-hmm. out better. Yeah, because um, it got dark a little earlier, and also the it was easier. Somehow, I guess the bats came out or were easy to spot a little in lighter conditions than the fireflies yeah. were. So I think bat night just for our. I think if if you vote if your kids are later bedtimes, whatever, then yeah. it, then you nail it. So well, I think, we have a lot of adults that come too. Oh yeah, it's a great you know they come lay out a picnic. Everybody loves being in a cemetery after. Everyone dark. loves an ice cream truck. Everyone yeah. loves an ice cream truck, and the adults really. Lo- I mean, the bat walk in particular is is July twenty eighth. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of thing where like I mean you, I think I will occasionally see bats, and it's sort of like it seems random. Like I'm not thinking about. It. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, is that a bat? 
You know, and then, mm-hmm. and then, but this is one where you walk around here. There are a lot of bats. It's a lot. Whenever, <laughs> whenever I'm here after a certain time of night, like at that right time of night, yeah, there are tons of bats. And it sort of makes I mean, you think like there are other, it's also, I think, a, a question of not that, that in cities we have green spaces. We go to green spaces. We don't generally go to green spaces at night. Mm-hmm. Like people don't like recreationally, right. you know, if you're not up to no good, right? You're, you're, you don't recreationally hang out in Fairmont Park, East or West, right. after dark. Um, and people are kind of scared of the parks after dark anyways. I'm not even sure if you're allowed to be in the parks after dark. Is it Thursday 20s? Yeah. Um, but but I bet if you're just walking around like Lemon... What's that, Lemon Hill? Lemon Hill. I used to be the caretaker at Lemon Hill, so oh, I was there, there at night all the they time. They have bats there? So many bats. I'm going to say, it's like some more terrain. Because I was I out all there, the like, you know... Letting my dogs run around in the fenced-in zone at dusk, and it was tons of bats. Right. So I think they're probably everywhere. We just don't think to look And at Lemon Hill, they have louvered shutters on the mansion, and bats love those louvered shutters. You mean the slats that are... Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. What time was it? Uh, Seven, or six to nine. The walk happens towards the end, like the last half hour. So I have a couple of bits I want to make sure I tape before we wrap up. One is I decided I was going to say let's do groundhogs as our synanthropic organism of the episode. Um, is, that, is that a stretch? What's I a synanthropic? An animal that likes to live with people. Mm. And so I was um, reading about them live, being more abundant um, post-colonization. Yeah, I guess them and chipping sparrows. They love open space. They love, they love the, they're like robins. I mean, like, yeah. they love the, the sort of savanna or, or fields that we create for them and just move right in. And so, I, I, and so that's why I was thinking groundhogs. They love, I mean, I have walking Malvern, railroad embankments, you know, lawns, playing yeah, fields, golf courses. The, you know that, like, building supply store on... on oh, Kemp? On, is it on what? On, on, on Woodland? On Lindbergh? On Woodland, yeah. Woodland? Yeah. It's like this weird, like, it's a little tiny garden center and, like... Oh, yeah, woodland building uh, supply. Yeah, it's, like, right there. Dude, I would guess because it's rail track or the park. I mean, there. you've seen them, you've seen them on the, below the L, like, around 48th. You told me that story. Somebody told me they saw one, like, I've seen down one the down. side alley of my twin. There you like, go. Oh, they're, they're following me everywhere. No, they're just everywhere. They're everywhere. They're, they're like, and they're, and it's, they're... It's the kind of thing, like, I can't tell if they're getting more abundant, or I just started noticing them, and my eyes are now switched on to look for... My search image is set for groundhogs, so I'm seeing them. I think they're more abundant. Maybe. I love them. But... I'm going to cuddle them. They love airports. They're Man. not super sweet. They <laughs> look really cute and cuddly, but they're really not. Well, I mean, the context that you're encountering them... Yeah. I had an experience with groundhog once. Yeah. I was walking up um, the side of... Limber Boulevard, and I look down, and there's a groundhog, and it's like backing out of the barrel. And I'm like, I could reach down and touch this groundhog way before it could turn around and bite me. You know? Did you try? I did. What happened? I touched it. Did it bite you? It just kind of looked at me like, can you look like what's up? Like, <laughs> like I know what you did. There. I know what you did. It's cool. Like, and I just wanted to connect. I know you wanted to feel how soft I was. We're cool. Was he soft or kind of coarse? Very soft. A lot softer. Not like rabbit soft, but like a lot softer than I thought it would be. Synanthropic organism. Anything else you feel, feel like you missed that you want to talk about? That like, especially I, sort of, stuff? 
Like we, like I look at eBird all the time. I am a novice birder. I really want to be a birder, but I'm just not yet. But I have binoculars. You got in Mr. My, Bird Have binoculars in my truck, and I have a bird guide in there. Um, but I look at eBird a lot, um, and we really, at a site like ours, rely on citizen science a lot to help us figure out what we have. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I don't know if I believe it or not. I mean, somebody somebody sent me an email and said they saw a bald eagle here, and they could have. Totally could have. But I've never seen one, and so until I get a picture of it or I see it, no, I, I mean, there's, there's there's definitely. I, I'm yeah. sure I, I think people have not seen them because I see them. At, I see them at a, people see them at the museum all the time. I see them down at a barge that was like half time in there. And they're just fishing. I would stop by here. They just fish the river. They're fishing the Schuylkill, so, yeah. so they're just going to be flying over. Yeah. You know. So, and I see them in the Wiz fairly often now too. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're feeding. The bald eagles are so common in this area now. Yeah. That you're just going to see them flying over. You know, I've, I've seen them in a mountain ride a bunch of times. And the other thing, just not only are you on the river, but just with the amount of open sky that you have here. Yeah. You it's know? easy to spot things. Yeah. So that's something that we really rely on a lot and I I think one of the other things that actually is maybe a challenge for us is you know I talk about it a little bit uh, when talking about some of the issues we've had with people in the community related to groundhogs if you've if you're surrounded by an urban environment and the majority of the people using the space grew up in an urban environment sometimes kind of getting the education out there about why we have to do certain things or why it's actually pretty bad for us to have you feeding the cat that's here because we don't want a bunch of feral cats because we're trying to have songbirds. Like some of those correlations are a little bit harder. We're right to make. there with you. <laughs> you know, they're a little bit harder to make if you grew up in an urban environment and don't. I mean, I grew up in Nebraska, so you know, farmers are constantly dealing with managing nature to work in the way they need it to, or, um, you know, it's just part of, of managing a landscape. So how to communicate that with people and educate them about why we have to manage certain things the way we do. And now if someone hears this and they want to get involved, what should they do? If someone wants to hear this and get involved, they should email us at info at woodlands, W-O-O-D-L-A-N-D-S, Phila, P-H-I-L-A dot org. Um, and they can also follow us on Facebook at uh, The Woodlands. Uh, I guess facebook.com backslash The Woodlands. We'll link to all uh, And then we're also on Instagram and Twitter at, the, at Woodlands Phila. Um, so any of those ways. And the gates to The Woodlands are open daily from dawn to dusk. So you can come visit anytime. And I've seen a lot of you have two people on staff, but you mm-hmm. seem to have a lot of volunteers. We have a ton of volunteers um, helping from everything. A lot of a lot of them helping with landscape related things. So if anyone is interested in helping, we'd love to have if you're you. Looking for a place to garden. Looking for a place to garden. We have we have a a lot of different gardening programs. So including our newest and very popular, it's called the Grave Gardeners, and we have. A style of graves here called cradle graves that were basically designed to be planters 
And so we have over 70 people who have adopted cradle graves, planting them in 19th century styles. Um, and kind of in the process of planting them, taking, learning all about their history, planting them in a way that kind of memorializes the person buried there. It's been a really fun project. So And is diversifying our plant life as well. So, yeah. email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at herbwildlifecast. You can call us and leave us a message um, with some wildlife that you're observing uh, and checking out, and so we can put it on the podcast because we want to We want to hear about what you're seeing in the city, wherever you are, whatever city you're in, where you're visiting, where you're passing through at 267-603-3219. Again, 267-603-3219, or just record it on your phone. Uh, a little voice note, something like that, and um, even if it's just 20 seconds, uh, you can send it on over to us, and we'll be happy to pop it on the onto the podcast. Yeah, we like literally think that people who study urban wildlife are like Billy and I would just be like, dude, this person's look at the research they do. And actually, we see you out there. We get we get Twitter followers, and don't think I don't look at your whoever follows us and see what they do. And I'm like, oh my god. They, they study urban wildlife in this city and we're like this is so cool Tony like, sent me screenshots from Twitter like look at this one look at this one look at this one yeah because like we think I mean this is what we, we live for so you know we, we're honored that people who do this stuff professionally follow us so but we'd love to hear from you hey this is Matthias Fuchs again the correspondent from Berlin talking to you about the urban wildlife in Berlin and today it's the story of um, the kebab-eating fox, which I encountered. That's a while ago. But I was uh, coming home from a bar. I think it was already pretty late. And I might have been a bit drunk, but not too drunk. So I could still identify a fox and distinguish it, it from dogs. And also we don't have many stray dogs in Germany. So this was definitely a fox. And the funny thing about this fox is that it was standing in an, in a quarter of Berlin that I live in where there's lots of Middle Eastern people living and lots of Middle Eastern food shops. So it's not unlikely you find the debris of kebab on the street every now and then. And that fox was happily standing there and indulging in garlic sauce and shredded meat. And when I passed by on my bike... I think this was also winter and there was ice around and it does make sense that all these stories are in winter because that's when the foxes don't have much to eat otherwise um, this fox just looked at me as if um, somebody is being disturbed while having dinner so he looked at me for maybe a second or so in the sense of what do you want <laughs> and I just drove past and he got his head down again and continued eating so this shows you how much uh, they have been habituated to people already in this part of town. All right. And I said, man, I would love to be a groundhog with a big spoon while being... Well, this was your raccoon dream. Well, it's just kind of the same thing. Either yeah. a raccoon or a groundhog. I would like cuddle with one while I am the little spoon of a black bear. <laughs>